you're in trouble. It'll just be a little easier to hear for us this morning. Um, hey, so maybe some of you are, are here new with us. One, welcome. We're glad you're here. And you may be going, well, gosh, this is weird. We're kind of moving from all these kind of different things going on this morning. What in the world is going on? If you are uh, new with us, one thing that we do every time we come together as the people of God is we walk through the story of the gospel. From what we sing, from what we say together, from how we pray together, how we fellowship with one another, how the word is proclaimed, is we're just walking through the same story so on, on one end, there's really nothing new to go through, and that's really good news because we can't get over the old news, which is the greatest news, which is inexhaustive, right, or unexhaustive, which is the word, whichever is proper. Uh, so that's what we're doing again this week as we gather together. And, and if, if you haven't been with us for a while, we've been in for a, over a year now uh, in the book of Acts. In fact, as we started as a, a new church together, as Church in the Square, we began there in the book of Acts. So if you've been with us for a while, you know we're coming to the end here. We're in chapter 26 today, and we've got two more chapters after that, 27 and 28. So by the middle of October... This will be our last week in Acts. I'm kind of lamenting that a little bit, but I'm also eager as we continue to say, hey, this work will continue to work on us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want to invite you this morning, turn with me as we talk a little bit here to Acts 26. We're going to read the whole chapter together, but here's maybe just some notes for us as we get ready to read this together. You know, as we're getting close to the end of Acts, one of the things that I think we can observe throughout the whole book, throughout this reading of Acts together, is, is a few things. One, or are a few things. One, Acts, I'm learning more and more, Acts is so much more than just the story of the Christian church movement, right? Sometimes it's easy to just look into the book of Acts and go, oh, well, here's just how God continued to expand his kingdom through the local church. And that's true, but there's so much more because Acts is, is both the Acts of the Apostles. Jesus has sent out people saying, I'm going to empower you by the, the Holy Spirit to go out and declare my name. While I won't be physically here with you, I will be sitting at the right hand of the Father. I'm sending you the helper, the Holy Spirit. You are not alone. I'm going to send you out to continue this work that I have begun. So it's about the Acts of the Apostles who were eyewitnesses of, of Jesus, commissioned by Him to declare His name among Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But Acts is also the Acts of the promised Holy Spirit, the one who empowers God's people and the Holy Spirit will continue to move and work among followers of Jesus. Three, I, I've observed that Acts, we can acknowledge that the, it, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, we recognize that it's the Spirit enabling and prodding followers of Jesus to pursue holiness. In other words, this theme of obedience that continues to come up through the whole book here. And then lastly, Acts continues to answer for us today. So we're not just looking back historically, but we're also going, this is how God's Word is informing me right here and now, informing us as God's people right here and now with the full scope of what biblical obedience is right here and now. So let's continue to read about it and see what God is calling us again to today in Acts 26. If you'll turn with me. 
I'm going to let us remain seated because it's a long, full chapter, all right? So here we go. Acts 26. Are you ready for this? You can say yes or you don't have to say anything at all. All right. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you? God raises the dead. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Now in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on, a, on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And, we had, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in a Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. That's an interesting line. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the forgiveness and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. We're continuing on here in verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me, seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. 
And as he was saying these things, in his defense, Festus said, to, said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I, except without these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Thanks be to God. Lord, we're dependent on you. Just like the Apostle Paul was expressing, even in his defense, we are dependent on you even here now. We're not dependent just because we want to learn something new about you, although every time we learn something new about our Savior, it certainly causes us to love you more. And it causes us to see how much you love us. But today we're dependent on you because we know you're going to be calling us to something. Or maybe today we're going to see more how you're calling us away from some things. How you're calling us to turn away from the world and continue to turn to you, our Savior. So help us believe it again today as we read your word. Help us to rest in the work that you've done. And help us as we're sent out of here that this doesn't just end here in these walls, that this isn't just a place to get our tanks filled and go, okay, I'm good for the rest of the week. But Lord, it's a, a sending that you give us to go and believe, remember, and proclaim before the watching world as we're sent out as continuous worshipers. It's in the name of our incredible, all-powerful Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray together. And all God's people said, amen. All right. That was a lot to read, Acts chapter 26. Maybe it's helpful, or at least it is for me, to always come back to how did we get here? What, what, what is going on? And especially maybe if you haven't been in Acts that long, or maybe you're joining us a little farther in here, here's what's happened to lead up to this point in chapter 26. So we're going to back up a little bit. You may want to turn there as I read through these, or you just may want to hear this and just remember and refer to it later, maybe even make some notes along the way. You know, Paul's third missionary journey, as God had changed Paul, he sends him out, right? And so there are a few different missionary journeys he's on. Well, Paul's third missionary journey ends in Acts 20. Why is that important for Acts 26? Well, Paul's plan is to go to Rome after this third missionary journey ends. He's said this. So if we were to turn back to Acts chapter 20, we find in verse 17 that Paul gathers the Ephesian elders. This is while they're in a place called Miletus. And he says he did not shrink from teaching anything profitable. And then he'd been testifying both to Jews and Greeks 
toward God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 22 of Acts chapter 20, he shares that he's headed to Jerusalem. I want to go to Jerusalem first on my way to Rome. And this is what happens beginning in verse 22. And now behold, these are Paul's words recorded by Luke here in Acts, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit is leading me to do this, not knowing what exactly is going to happen to me there. I just added some words in there. Not knowing what will happen to me there is what the text actually says. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Huh, sounds familiar in Acts 26. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And at the end of this chapter, we read in verse 37, this is the response as Paul has shared this, that there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken. You know, saying that I know what lies ahead. The Spirit has testified me, to me that imprisonment and afflictions await, that they would not see His face again. And they accompanied Him to the ship. Moving forward, Paul, Luke, and others set sail on this ship that they were accompanied to. And then in Acts 21, they land eventually at this place called Tyre, where through the Spirit, the disciples there who gather with them were telling Paul, please don't continue on to Jerusalem. We know what lies ahead. Then in Caesarea, this is another place they land, while staying at the home of Philip the Evangelist. Remember, this is in Acts 21. Philip has four daughters who are prophetesses. They prophesied, as well as another prophet, Agabus, who joins them. Agabus had been seen earlier in Acts, telling about things to come. And he would come down from Judea, and Agabus puts on this visual display, takes Paul's belt, and he binds his hands and his feet with his belt. And he says in Acts 21.11, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man, Paul, who owns this belt, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentile of the Gentiles. So here's what's going on. Then while in Jerusalem, James, continuing in Acts 21, one of the other leaders of the early church, one of the apostles, he warns Paul of the Jews who were zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, they've been told some lies, but this is what they've been told, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. So here Paul is being reminded and being persuaded, please don't do this. And then James says, okay, if you're going on, here's what you need to do. Well, we're fast forwarding now. We know, as we just read in Acts 26, Paul is arrested. He gets arrested while he's at the temple, and this moves forward to Acts 22. He has the opportunity in Acts 22 to tell his story before every, everyone listening, how he was also a Jew born of Tarsus. He obeyed God's law devoutly, and he'd been forever changed by Jesus on the road to Damascus. In other words, this is why I'm declaring and living the way I'm living. It's because I've been changed. Well, Things don't get better from there as we read through Acts. 
Uh, in fact, things get more violent. Folks get crazy around Paul. So in Acts 23, Paul's taken down to the barracks because folks were about to rip him limb from limb if they did not rescue him and lock him up. So they protect him from the crowd. This is in Acts 23. And it's here that the Lord stood by him and said, this is Acts 23, 11, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And then the next morning, while Paul is still locked up, is when some Jews actually plot out, we are going to kill this guy, and we are willing to take a very strict vow until we succeed. We're not going to eat or drink anything until we're successful. Well, in the Lord's providence, who happens to be nearby while these Jews who are plotting Paul's death are, are telling this to other chief priests and leaders in the neighborhood. None other but his sister's son, his nephew. And so his nephew hears this, and then he says, all right, I'm going to run to where Paul's held. I'm going to tell him. Paul says, all right, I want you to go and tell the tribune this. The tribune happens to be a prominent leader that Paul believes can help out in this situation. And the tribune responds when, Paul, when Paul's nephew tells the story of what these Jews are plotting out to do. He responds by giving 200 soldiers, 200 horsemen, and 70 spearmen. I'd say that's quite a guard, right? And has them escort Paul to the governor Felix in Caesarea. So Paul has continued to make this journey from Jerusalem now in Caesarea, so we're almost back to Acts 26 now. In Acts 24, we just kept moving through each book here just as a recap, Paul defends himself before that governor Felix is not found guilty but is held in custody. How long is he held in custody? It says over two years at the, Acts, at the end of Acts 24. Felix is then succeeded by a new governor, Festus. That's the individual we hear here in Acts 26 who's like, Paul, you're out of your mind. Well, the Jews want Festus to have Paul brought from Caesarea where he is being held, where he's going to continue to make a defense. They're like, hey, why don't you bring him back to Jerusalem because we believe we can kill him here. We can finish this guy. But the Lord continues to protect Paul. He holds strong to his defense that he's not committed offense against the law of the Jews. It's Paul, the temple, or against Caesar. So Paul declares in Acts 25.11 now, I appeal to Caesar. That's what's led up here to King Agrippa. They've said, okay, if you're going to keep going, we'll keep moving up the ladder here. So Paul now gets to stand before King Agrippa and Bernice with him. And that's a whole weird relationship. If you were here last week, Bernice happens to be both Agrippa's lover and sister. So just wanted to tell you that because that's how messed up things are going on here. And this what is what leads into our text in Acts 26 that we just read. There we go. There's what's leading in. So, let's dig in now to Acts 26. In verse 1, we read that Agrippa says to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul does this thing. He stretches out his hand and made his defense. And I can just imagine this visual that Paul gives. It, it's not as if Paul is like trying to do this great rhetorical thing like, 
<laughs> it's, it's a humility thing that, where he's displaying, oh, king. And so it's interesting that Paul has been through all this and yet still wants to display humility before his leaders. One, because I, I believe when Paul says in the previous chapter, both 24 and 25, I've been of good conscience before both God and man. I have lived this out. I'm not, I'm not going against the system. If I'm really guilty, go ahead and put me to death. But, but truthfully, here's the deal. I've, I've, I'm not guilty. So let's continue on. And I think it's a beautiful display of humility as Paul stretches out his hand as if both to honor and plead before King Agrippa. Well, what does he say to the king? He says, I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa. Why? I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. In verse 3, especially because you, king, are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. You know, Paul knows that King Agrippa, he was also called Herod. Uh, no, excuse me, another family member was called Herod. He knows that King Agrippa knows what's up. Here's, here's why. You see, he came from a line of rulers who knew all too well what had taken place among the Jewish people. So let's, let's walk through a little family line of Agrippa. This here in Acts 22, he is considered Agrippa Two, he would be the great-grandson of Herod the Great. But let's, let's go backwards here. So Agrippa II's father is Agrippa I. He'll be a familiar name for you. He was also called Herod. He was the one who had James, the brother of John, killed and Peter imprisoned. This was in Acts 12. And at the end of the chapter, we read that when this King Agrippa I gets all puffed up and conceited as the people are like crying out, wow, this man is God-like. What happens to him? An angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. And it gets gross from there because he was eaten by worms and he breathed his last. That was in Acts 12. That's, that's this dude's dad, Agrippa I, okay? Now let's back up to another father before that. This dude's father was, was Herod, uh, excuse me, Agrippa I, Herod's father, was Herod Antipas. I'm getting my own mind twisted here. Agrippa II, Agrippa I, now we're at Herod Antipas. You'll also find him in Acts, but he may be familiar to you in Matthew 14. This is the guy who had John the Baptist beheaded because he called out Antipas and his wife. And so Herodias, being upset by this, his wife sends their daughter to dance before him at a birthday party. And Antipas is like, wow, I liked your dance. What do you want? Let me give you anything. And, of course, Herodias, the mother of the daughter, says, go ask for the head of John the Baptist. I want him killed. I'm tired of him messing in my life. All right? So this is the guy who has John the Baptist beheaded. This family line is not looking too pretty, Right? And then lastly, the father of that guy is a very familiar figure in the Gospels. His name was Herod the Great. He's the one who was in rule during the birth of Jesus Christ. We hear his name during Advent or Christmas. He wanted Jesus found because he, he had heard about the coming Messiah. He himself believing there was a Messiah to come. But to think like 
okay, if this is true, and if he's going to be a king, what does that mean for me? That means he takes over my throne. So this guy's threatened. He says, I got to stop this kid in his tracks before this happens. Let's have him destroyed. But in Matthew 2, Herod the Great is tricked by none other than the wise men that we read about because they had went to see him, and he was like, I want you to tell me where he's at, and then we'll go find him and kill him. Well, they tricked him. They didn't do so. And so what does he do in response? He kills all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. So Paul, speaking to this Agrippa, Agrippa II, understands, hey, I know the story. I know you know the story good and well. I know your family line. Paul's speaking to him, and he begs him, which is interesting that we come to him in such humility. Listen to me. I want you to hear it all. Why? Well, we're about to hear the reason Paul wants Agrippa to to listen patiently. Let's continue on in verse 4. My manner of life, this is Paul talking to Agrippa and to the people there, the Jews and the crowd, from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time. And if they're willing to testify, it's interesting how he calls them all out. He's like, you guys are accusing me of things, but you're not really willing to stand here and testify what's really happened. If they're willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. In other words, I'm... I'm not different from you. I'm different now, changed by Jesus Christ. But listen, we got a similar story. And now in verse 6, I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. In other words, you guys know the same hope. You've heard this story for generations that a Messiah is to come, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So Paul brings back the reason for his trial. He keeps coming back to its resurrection. That's his whole deal. That's why you're upset with me. He shows common ground as the Pharisees also believed in the resurrection. They just didn't believe that the Messiah had come yet. They, They knew well the prophets and the promise of God. For this hope, I'm accused by the Jews. Then Paul addresses everyone in the crowd as we read in verse 8. And there's this rhetorical question. It's interesting. It's like asking, why would it be impossible for Jesus to be the risen Messiah? It's like he's saying, you all know and believe that God can do anything, right? They all knew that God had created us from dust and breathed His life into us. Surely you don't think that it's incredible that God can raise the dead. It's the same reason we have a hard time. Truthfully, we, us here today, it's the same reason we have a hard time with the resurrection. You know, it's easy to believe it. It's it's easy to celebrate it on Easter Sunday. But here's the thing. It's hard to really believe and live because... Here's the thing with resurrection, and here's the thing I believe Paul is getting at the root of with the people here accusing him. It's because in order to have a resurrection, there's got to be a death. 
And that's what we're fearful of here today. There's no one in this room that goes, yeah, I look forward to death. I mean, sure, we can say with our lips, like, I look forward to death because I believe there is a resurrection of the dead. I believe the hope, the promise that lies ahead if I'm in Jesus Christ, that I will see Jesus face to face and all pain and heartache will be wiped away. But the truth is, is death is a scary thing. And I think for the people standing there accusing Paul, they're going, I don't want to believe the one who is supposed to be our Messiah has died. Surely, if he's going to be the God of the universe, our Lord, our rescuer, he would not humble himself on a cross. That's a fraud. And we wrestle with the same thing, even though we read it every year. We go through this. It's that I don't want to believe that my Savior has died because it seems like failure. And if he died, and if I know I'm going to die, there's something that gives me this reason to believe that I no longer have power to save myself. Isn't that true of us all? That we go to truly understand resurrection, that means I've got to acknowledge death. And to truly be a resurrected follower of Jesus, it means we have to die to ourselves, not just a physical death. It means that Christ is killing the sin that's within us. And that's painful to let go of. So just a couple of things to remember here, even as we think about the people standing there, is we're not so different. Let's keep moving on. Uh, and, and let's let the text draw this out more. So Paul says in verse 9, we're continuing on, Acts 26, 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, the very thing you're doing here, I was convinced was the right thing to do. And I did so. I did it in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In other words, I chased these folks around as much as I could. It's, it's not like Paul's persecution from the Jews was unfamiliar, right? He's saying that the very thing happening now is exactly what I believed I should do. The very thing you're doing I thought was the right thing to do. And then in verse 12, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when he had fallen, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You know, when Paul walks through this, this is the third time we hear his testimony in the book of Acts. The first time is in Acts 9 when, when Luke records it actually happening. And then again, Paul rehearses it before the leaders. That's in Acts 22. And now in Acts 26, this is the third time we hear. This is the second time Paul is using this as a defense. And, and as we, we read this, there's something different, though. There's, there's a way that Paul expresses it. It's not that he's adding to it. It's just that now he's expressing some things that Jesus has said that he hasn't necessarily recorded or Luke hasn't necessarily recorded before. And think about this 
interesting verse. I had not heard this phrase before. Jesus in response to Paul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Does anyone know what goads are? That's kind of rhetorical, but you could say yes or no. Um, I didn't. I had to look it up. Goads are cattle prod or oxen prod. Historically, they were sticks that were, they were sharpened. And when the oxen or the, the cattle were, were yoked together to do farming work, they would be prodded with those sticks to move in certain directions or to keep moving or keep digging in. And so, as you can imagine, the response of uh, a bull, an oxen, the cattle yoked together, this would not be a comfortable thing. And it's kind of like if you grew up with farm animals, not that if you grew up here in Chicago, you had like horses and cattle, but if you grew up outside of here and you had those type of animals, you can imagine like you, you see a field and you often will see uh, horses or a cattle like as they're swatting at flies and they're kicking at things. When things bother them, yeah, that was my, that was my kick. They kick back. Well, what would happen is they would prod them, and the cattle would kick against the goads. Do you think that was more comfortable or more painful? It only added to the pain for them to kick against the goads. And so Jesus is using this imagery for Paul, you know, in this fast reaction as the animal would kick its hind leg. It's realizing, oh, it's actually better for me to let the farmer prod and drive versus me trying to kick against it. So, in other words, it's futile. And Jesus was telling Paul, to go against me, to go against God, is futile. You can't oppose the God of the universe. You can't stop the Lord Almighty. So, here's that interesting phrase there. And then Paul responds in verse 15 of Acts 26. And I said... Who are you, Lord? In other words, who's talking to me? There's a bright light. I'm now blind. My friends with me are bowed down to the ground. I can't see. Who are you? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then here's this beautiful thing here in verse 16. Jesus says, but rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. You know, like I said before, this is the third time that we read in Acts of, of Paul's Damascus Road transformation. Uh, something stands out this time, though, as Paul shares it before Agrippa and before the crowd. There are three particularly wonderful things that we just read that Jesus has said to Paul. And so I want us to take note of these things. One in verse 16, the beginning of it, Jesus says, I've appeared to you. Think about this for a second. Think about what that means, the God of the universe. If we just look back... God was someone who couldn't be seen, right? If we look back to Old Testament Israel, what was it that God continued to tell the people of Israel? You can't look at me. You can't take it in. In fact, when Moses saw the backside of God, his face was radiant. That was enough. So to take in the glory of God, you would just melt. Maybe. I don't know. Something would happen that wouldn't be cool. You would die. You can't take in my glory and splendor. And now to think that Jesus Christ, the God-man, 
God incarnate, taking on flesh, has shown Himself, has revealed Himself to us, and He's revealing Himself to Paul, just like He had to His disciples previously, before He had descended to the Father. I've appeared to you. Jesus steps in physically with His people and says, I'm here. I'm here. You can follow me. Here's how I will step into your life and change you. And then in verse 17, Jesus uses this phrase, I'm delivering you. You know, it's interesting to see how Jesus appears before, but he doesn't just show up and say, all right, here I am. Look at me. Believe me. But trust me, I'll be your deliverer. And then at the end of verse 17, I'm not only delivering you, but I'm calling you out. You know, in verse 16, he said to appoint you. But in verse 17, he says, I'm sending you. You know, this is why we have a liturgy like we have each week we come together. It's shaped in the same way. You know, it's, it's here on Sundays when we come together and, and we read God's Word, we respond in prayer. We, sometimes we'll read Scripture aloud together in these all portions. Or we'll respond musically in song. You know, from the call to worship, through the songs we sing, to the proclamation of the Word, all the way to the benediction. We just can't get away from this truth. This truth is, yes, God is holy. He's over all. But He speaks. And He speaks to us. We can't get away from the fact that we're all sinners, just like Paul going against Jesus. But, oh, the story doesn't stop, right? We always walk through, we have been delivered in Christ Jesus. In other words, Christ is our only rescuer. It's why we sang what we were singing. It's why we remember that we can fall down at the the foot of the cross because we're looking up to our deliverer over and over. And he doesn't just deliver us, but he calls us out. As we end with our benediction each week, it's our reminder that we're sent out as the people of God. In other words, our worship of God doesn't shut off. It doesn't stop here and we go, okay, now I'm going to go back to my other stuff. It's as you continue on to do all the things that I've called you into, believe this, rest in this, remember this, act in these ways, follow obediently. And he sends us out in this way to proclaim him. And then verse 18 continues for Paul, but us also. What does Jesus send us to do? To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So what Jesus has declared before Paul is our same order of worship. I've appeared to you. I'm calling you out. I'm speaking to you. I will be your deliverer, your only hope, and I'm sending you out. I've appointed you as my people to go declare and proclaim. And now Paul is continuing in his defense. Let's look to verse 19 now. Paul says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, this is after he shared his testimony of, find, of, of Jesus Christ delivering him, I was not, oh, dis, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision." but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. In other words, not only imploring turn to Jesus Christ, but now live a life of obedience, pursuing holiness, keeping in repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. 
To this day, verse 22, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people, to Israel, to the Jews, and to the Gentiles. You know, this takes us back to Acts 9, the first time we hear this testimony of Paul. You know, Jesus spoke to another character at play here. There was a, a, a chief priest, a leader named Ananias. Well, Jesus appears to him saying, hey, there's this guy, Saul, who is headed your way. Ananias knew who he was. He was like, Jesus, uh, Lord, that's the guy who's been killing guys like me. I don't know if I want to interact with him. I don't know if that's a good idea. And, of course, the Lord is saying now, actually, this guy's changed. He is a chosen instrument. This is Acts 9, 15. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and, and kings and the children of Israel. It's interesting when we read verse 22 in Acts 26 and we hear this from Acts 9, verse 15. Paul saying, so here I stand testifying both to small and great. He's acknowledging, hey, God has called me out to do this. And look, what he said has come to pass. Here I am standing before great and small. I'm standing before the king, declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, so as an instrument of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, he's carrying the name of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So continuing in verse 24 now. Acts 26, 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, and here's where Festus, this governor, steps in. He's like, I got something to say. He says it with a loud voice. Paul, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul responds, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. In other words, all these things that have taken place, listen, you guys know what's happened to me. These things aren't like unknown among the regions, all right? We've been around, you've been talking, it's known. It's not a secret to the king. Now in verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Paul's already acknowledged, I know you know what's going on. I know you know what's up. I know you know about this God of the Jews. But do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa in verse 28 said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? In other words, are you going to just like think that I'm going to change just right now while you're telling me all this? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Look at what Paul has done. He, he can be straight to the point about this whole thing is about Jesus being the resurrected Savior. He doesn't have to like cower down and say, I, I, I can't go there. Something's bad going to happen to me. And yet, 
It's like he's saying so much more. Friends, there's a, there's a reason none of this has been done in a corner. The gospel won't be hidden. It's why we can take comfort here today, here and now. Even when the world says, let's do our best. Let's figure out how to cut this thing off. This is shaking too many things up. Let's suppress Let's try to, in the name of equality, say that, that the gospel of Jesus is oppressive and, and this can't be proclaimed. Or let's do what we can to, to, to make the gospel sound like it's, like it's this judgmental, better-than-anyone thing. Let's make it sound like this. Take heart. What Jesus has commissioned will not be stopped. In other words... Be faithful, be bold, because the gospel has never been stopped from working, nor will it be. Jesus Christ, what he says will come to pass, will come to pass. And Paul, standing before everyone, says, I long for you all to become like me. In other words, I believe that the gospel is the power of salvation for all, as we would see in the book of Romans 1. And I want you to be a transformed follower of Jesus. Look to the Savior. But here's the thing. And I think this is where Paul has like some subversive stuff going on, which is interesting. He just says, except for these chains. And it's one thing because we know Paul was actually chained up. And he's saying like, I want you to be a follower of Jesus. I want you to be like me when he uses that language. But I don't want you to have to go through this. I wonder if Paul is saying so much more than the physical chains. Because Paul was always believing that freedom was given in spite of prison bars, right? Or else he wouldn't have endured it. He wouldn't have stayed. He had many opportunities to get out of jail. There were times he would, he would have the opportunity to, to just leave, right? And in spite of physical chains, he remains. He says, I'm trusting what the Lord has said. When the Spirit testified to me and all these places that there will be affliction, that there will be persecution, that there will be bondage, but I'm going to continue to work through you, that I'm going to remain faithful. Paul had already fallen at the feet of Jesus, this bright light shining while in complete rebellion to him, right? On the Damascus Road, it's not like there was this primed heart where like someone had said something to Paul and he was slowly softening. No, this guy was completely against the Savior, Jesus Christ. He was hardened against him, rebellious. And while still being a sinner, that would be Paul's words later, right? One of his letters to the churches. While sinning, Christ died for us. While in rebellion towards him, Christ would show up and rescue me. And while in complete rebellion to Jesus Christ, he sees Christ and he hears the beautiful life-giving words that only Christ can give full meaning to. And so let's, let's back up for a second here in Acts 26 to verse 16 again. What is it that Jesus Christ says to him? He appears before him and he says, rise, rise and stand to your feet. You know, think about that for a second. Is this the first time that Jesus Christ has, says, has said rise? Of course, we all can acknowledge if we, if we like learned of Jesus Christ, that we know Jesus Christ himself said he would die and yet he would rise. But what's interesting is Jesus Christ said so many times to others, rise. 
Let's just do a, a study here quickly. I want to read these through, and you're welcome to write these passages down as we read through, and maybe it's just an opportunity to go back and rehearse through these through the week as you remember the splendor of our Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, here we go. In Mark 9, uh, excuse me, Matthew 9, which is also found in Mark 2 and Luke 5, these are all corresponding synoptic gospels. They're the same story found in these different gospel writers. So Matthew 9, Mark 2, and Luke 5, this is where Jesus heals a paralytic man. The Pharisees and the scribes are there, and they question Jesus, and Jesus responds to them in, in this way. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Here we see Jesus saying this. Then in Mark chapter 5 and Luke 8, corresponding stories here, Jesus heals a man named Jairus' daughter where he says, little girl, I say to you, arise. What happens in verse 42 of Mark 5, and immediately the girl got up and began walking. In Luke chapter 7, verses 14 and 15, this is where a widow's son is dead. And during the funeral procession, can you imagine, while the casket is being walked out with the pallbearers, Jesus shows up and he says, young man, the dead one in the casket, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Then in John 11, you remember Jesus, his dear friend Lazarus, he dies. He stands, Jesus stands in front of his tomb. This is in John 11, and he says, Lazarus, come out. In verse 44, the man who had died came out and his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Paul remembered the wonderful words from Jesus often, rise and stand to your feet. Jesus says, rise. And so Acts 26 ends in this way. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Paul wouldn't escape persecution, but he understood what it meant to encounter Jesus Christ and hear, rise. He understood that Jesus was saying, rise, I have freed you from bondage. So when Agrippa says to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar, I wonder if Paul is hearing that going, man, you think I'm not free. But Jesus has called me out. Jesus said, rise, stand up. You're free. So hear this. Hear this. Hear Jesus' words again today because here's the thing. Once again, we come back to what we even said at the beginning of this text. This text is not for us to just go, okay, cool, we remember Paul's story. We remember God's faithfulness. Yes, it's true. 
but for us, for you, for me. If you are in Christ, Jesus is still reminding, rise. I'm speaking to you. If you are in Christ Jesus, you have been set free. So continue to rise because I'm the resurrected Savior. I won't be stopped. So continue to rise in boldness. Continue to rise in belief. Continue to rise when you face conflict and heartache. Continue to rise when you believe that God has forgotten you. And call out like the psalmist, but I remember, but I remember the truth of the gospel. I remember that I have been set free. Jesus Christ is saying to us again today, rise. Why? Because I, Jesus Christ, am the resurrected Savior. I'm risen and I'm coming back. For the unbeliever in the room, what does that mean? Maybe you're here and you're going, man, this is unfamiliar to me. This doesn't make sense. What do you mean Jesus Christ would call someone out? I thought all of life was about just getting your act together, just about getting on without problems. And the truth is we see over and over in God's Word, which is why we gather together, right? We gather around God's Word. We can't get away from the truths of the Scriptures. And as we see Scripture throughout its entirety, we can't get away from the fact that problems won't go away this side of heaven. But Jesus Christ calls out to the unbeliever, and He's calling out to you today if you are not in Christ. I'm calling out, come trust in me. Rise, because I am risen. There is a hope that you can look to. Friends, Jesus continues to call out, rise. I offer true freedom. He did so now as the resurrected Savior Himself who is returning one day. And so when He calls out, rise, we can't help but get up and follow. Thanks be to God. For His incredible Word, how the power of the Holy Spirit continues to work on us. So remember this again this week. You know, every time we proclaim God's Word, we don't end there. We get to respond, right? Hearing God's Word elicits a response. And one of our responses, aside from singing together and fellowshipping together and being sent out, is that we get to enter into a meal together, a meal that Jesus Christ Himself instituted uh, with His disciples. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Jesus Christ, Paul reminds the story of Jesus Christ before His disciples. The Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, He took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as we participate in this meal in a moment, we're coming back to the same reality. Jesus Christ has called us out as a people to commune with him and he said rise and celebrate me the living savior but as we celebrate it's also a time in our remembrance to say lord what are you calling me to turn away from what unbelief are you calling me to throw off and what belief are you calling me to put on in you What are the things that I have tried to hide from you and from my brothers and sisters? So this is an opportunity at this meal to examine ourselves. 
Say, Jesus, I need you to continue with your word to expose what's going on in my heart. And so this may be a moment for you as you're a follower of Jesus to pause and say, you know, I just need to bring this before the Lord. Or maybe I need to bring this before another brother or sister that I've sinned against before I take this meal. If you're not a believer, as acknowledged before, this is not a meal for you, not because as followers of Jesus we're elitist, but because this meal is for the people of God. But what we would love to do is we'd love to talk to you right after this gathering or throughout this week. Come see one of our elders or deacons up front right after, or see one of your neighbors. Maybe someone invited you here today and say, tell me more. Our members would be happy to tell you more about the gospel of Jesus. We all equally know the gospel of Jesus Christ. We would love to talk with you and prepare you to celebrate this meal with us in the future. Let me pray for us as we prepare to take this meal together. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you truly are the resurrected Savior. That you are still a rescuer. That you have not stopped your work that you've not said, no, time limit's up, I'm done, I'm not in the business of changing hearts anymore. But you're doing it even right here, right now, today. And we plead, we plead that you would even show us the fruit of that, that we could celebrate that. Lord, help us to believe and rest over and over. Help us in our unbelief. Help us to come back to your words in John 11 when you say, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, Yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Help us celebrate the wonderful news of you being the resurrected Savior and the wonderful news that in Christ there is a resurrection to come. We await your return. We say, come, Lord Jesus. It's in the all-powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.